Okay, we've, uh, we've been tracking through Hebrews 11 uh, for a few weeks, and this is actually going to be the last week on Hebrews 11. Uh, I mentioned last week about a, uh, a Christian fellow, a uh, missionary who actually went to North Korea and uh, got in trouble. In fact, he's been arrested in North Korea. So today I thought what I'd do is I'd show you a couple of news clips that have been about this particular guy because Hebrews 11 is all about faith. And you'll notice in the middle of this that uh, his wife says, we're faith missionaries. And notice in the second clip too that she says something about um, going to places where other people don't normally go. Uh, Very interesting. Here we go. Pretty intense, isn't it? Now, he's 75, right? Now, according to Hebrews 11, that's a pretty good way to go, isn't it? Is it? Is it? <laughs> it's an interesting question. I remember uh, hearing John Piper, a, uh, an American preacher guy, talking about, uh, I think it might have been some people in his particular church that went down to South America to tell people about Jesus and they were on a bus that ran off the side of the hill, a couple of older ladies, and they died. And he went home and he spoke with his kids about it and he said, is that a good way to go? He said, they were older, is a good way to go to give your life telling other people about Jesus. And obviously his point was in the end, that, that's a pretty good way to go. Now, Piper talks about other things in, in some of his writings. He talks about how much of a waste of a life it is to be an old person collecting shells on a beach. You know? I mean, in terms of the Hebrews 11 context, people of faith, better to get sentenced to hard labour in North Korea, then collect shells on a beach at 75. Well, let, let me ask you that. Does that fit in with Hebrews 11? Does it? Yeah, so you're a bit more vocal now, right? <laughs> but the thing is, I mean, we all think, well, what if that happened to me? That's a massive, massive challenge. Now, people have been talking to me about this Hebrews 11 series, right? And it's killing them. And let me tell you what's killing them. They can't handle the fact that all I'm talking about is the good things that these heroes of the faith did. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Does anyone here? So like, be honest about it. I'll get you to put your hand out. I've been talking about Abraham or we've been talking about Moses and most of the time you're sitting there thinking, but that's not the full story. He wasn't perfect. Come on, be honest about it. Who's the realist in here? Come on, there's, there's a few of you, right? You just come on. Like that's not the full story. Some of you, it's been killing you. All right, they can't actually be that good. Well, today is for you, realists, you unbiblical realists. The really interesting thing is, I'm going to deal with some of this today, but the really interesting thing about Hebrews 11, right, is the author doesn't deal with all of the crap that's gone on in their life. He doesn't do it. And it's an interesting thing. It's a really interesting question to ask. Why doesn't he bring up all the stuff, all the failings of these people in their, in their lives? That's a really interesting question because he doesn't, right? And some people have said to me, why don't you talk some more about the failings of Abraham and the failings of Moses and that sort of stuff? And one of my answers has been, because the author doesn't. And if he thinks you don't need to talk about it, we don't necessarily need to talk about it. Why do we have to put something into Hebrews 11 that's not actually in Hebrews 11? Is that fair enough? I mean, the Bible talks about it, to be sure. 
but the Hebrews 11 doesn't. But I'm going to talk about it, even though I've said that we shouldn't need to talk about it. All right? But I'm going to talk about it because there's one really interesting thing that shows up in Hebrews 11. So what I'd like you to do is to get your Bible out. We're going to read Hebrews 11. We're going to read the whole lot, all 500 verses. If, you're, if you can't see a Bible, can you just move so you can see one? That would be really good. I'm going to read the whole lot. And what I'd love you to do is to stand with me if that's okay. This is something we do every now and then because we think God speaking is really important and really significant and we're going to, our standing is a measure of respect to God and to Him speaking to us. So if you can uh, sidle up to someone and uh, look along, that would be great. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he wasn't found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the, head of his, over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. 
By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release be like North Korea, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from them, sorry, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And I'm going to read the next two out of 12. Therefore, therefore, based on Hebrews 11, and probably other stuff that he said in the book, but based on Hebrews 11, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I want you to quickly pray pray with me. God, thank you for speaking. Thank you for inspiring faith. Thank you for teaching us. And God, I I just pray that uh, you would help all of us here today, that you'd help people who are part of the project. God, I would love to think that maybe our, our names would be numbered among them. That our active trust in you our risk-taking for you would mean that we, would, we could be numbered among them because I think that's what your Holy Spirit wants to do with every believer. Everyone who follows you, every child of yours, is someone who actively trusts you and pushes into risky areas. So God, help us to see what that is today and uh, pray that you'd be our teacher today. Amen. Why don't you grab a seat? All right, this may be a little explicit, so if you've got some kids in here that can understand things, you might just want to, I don't know, become an earmuff for five minutes, all right? Heroes and zeros. 
I'm going to go through all of these guys and I'm going to tell you about the zero side of these people, all right? These are all the names that show up in Hebrews 11. There's a whole bunch of stuff about them that's pretty zero, all right? Here we go. We'll start with Abel. We don't have much on Abel. He didn't live for too long because his brother killed him, all right? But probably if he lived long enough, he'd probably do something that wasn't perfect in your eyes. Enoch, he's another guy. But the Bible gives him like probably a couple of verses, right? So you don't kind of get a lot of time to find out stuff that's going on for Enoch. Noah, sure he saved the the, the earth, he saved humanity. Uh, After he saved humanity, he gets out, he plants a vineyard. And what do you do with a vineyard? Well, you make wine. And what do you do with wine? Well, you get drunk on it, right? So he gets drunk and he gets naked, (laughs) okay? So um, that's uh, interesting, okay? And it kind of all happened in that order. So save humanity, build a vineyard get drunk, get naked, all right? That's kind of how it works. And you look at it and you just think in the last two or 3,000 years, not that much has changed, right? Because it tends to still be like that in our culture. Get drunk, get naked in that order. Anyway, um, let's not talk about that anymore. Then you get to Abraham. Abraham is lauded in uh, Hebrews 11. Let me tell you a few things about Abraham. Abraham lied twice about his wife being his sister, because he's afraid of what would happen. That's weird, right? Now, the interesting thing is, and this is for some of you, this would be weird. She was kind of his half-sister. All right? Um, one time that he lied about her uh, being his sister, I think it was King Abimelech, actually took him off. And the king actually, God gave the king a dream in the middle of the night before he actually had sex with her that she was someone else's wife and he came back and he kind of upped Abraham for the fact that Abraham had lied to him about the fact that Sarah was his wife, uh, Sarah was his sister rather than his wife, all right? On top of that, Sarah comes up with this really sweet idea, God's promise is not going to come about through us directly, so Abraham, you just need to get jiggy with my uh, servant girl Hagar and then now we've got Muslims. We might edit that out. All right, Sarah. The name Sarah means princess, right? She tells Abraham to have sex with Hagar, all right? Then when God comes to her and says, I'm going to give you a daughter, she laughs at God and then lies to God about her laughing at God. That's a, don't ever do that. That's a really dumb thing to do, right? It's like keeping a secret from someone that knows everything. You're never going to win that one. But she tried and she lost, all right? Then you get to Isaac in the Bible, and Isaac um, is one of the most pathetic men, it appears, in the Bible in terms of taking male leadership in his household. Absolutely gets dominated by his wife, Rebecca, I think it is, who kind of takes the lead in a whole bunch of stuff, all right? He seems to be a little bit of a klutz at times at the end because he gets tricked into giving the birthright and the inheritance to some other kid because they have twins, Jacob and Esau, all right? And Jacob steals it in cahoots with his mum. It's just, the the thing's a mess. Then you get to Jacob, who was a massive cheater, all right? Snaked the blessing from his brother with the help of his mum and basically was known as really a really deceptive dude uh, for selfish gain. Really interesting. There's this interesting time where uh, Jacob wrestles with, uh, with God and with an angel and I think one of the questions that gets asked of Jacob is, is, is uh, I say, who are you? Now, that's a really, really good question for someone who lies a lot and tricks people. True? Who are you? Interesting. Okay, Joseph. Now, Joseph was pretty clean, but I remember seeing a Joyce Meyer 
uh, clip. And if you don't like Joyce, that's okay. But I remember seeing this Joyce Meyer clip where she talked about Joseph sharing his dreams with his brothers. And she suspects he went out and she, he was skiding about all these things God was going to do for him and not for them. And we don't have that in the Bible, but um, that's possible. All right. Then you get to Moses. Okay. Moses was doing okay until he decided he was just going to kill an Egyptian soldier and just kind of get things done his way. Uh, and then when he's leading the Israelites, he loses his temper. God gets upset with him and basically says, before these people, you need to demonstrate that I'm holy so you don't get to go in the promised land. That's Moses. All right, I'm going to skip the next one. Rahab the prostitute. We'll come back to that one in a minute. Um, Gideon. Gideon is a fearful, scared little man, all right? He's threshing wheat in a wine press because he's scared of the Midianites and he probably had good reason to be scared of them. He was actually pretty bitter. An angel of the Lord came in and the first thing that he says to the angel of the Lord after they exchange pleasantries is, uh, what the heck is God doing, all right? We're getting whacked all the time by the Midianites. God's doing nothing. So God gives him a whole bunch of tasks to do, all right? And one of them is to pull down the, uh, the altar, I think it is, to, uh, to Baal. Now it specifically says in Judges that Gideon didn't go and pull down the altar of Baal in the middle of the day because he was scared of the people in the city and he was scared of his own family. So he got a couple of dudes and they snuck around and they did a night raid on the altar of Baal. All right? So it's like, hero of the faith. Good on you, Gideon. All right? He's doing a night raid because he's too scared of people. The next one, Barak. Barak was commanded by God through Deborah to attack Sisera, the commander of the, Can- of, uh, the Canaanite forces, all right? Oh, yeah, I hope you're cool with the fact, I- I'm not chauvinist, right, but some of this might sound chauvinist. He was so pathetic, he wouldn't go without Deborah going with him. So Deborah said, God's told me it's all going to work for you, and he goes, I'm not going unless you go. And Deborah goes, so be it, but you're not going to get any glory. The glory is going to go to women today because you don't have the guts to actually get out and get it done. All right? So he gets mentioned in Hebrews 11. Don't even get me started with Samson. All right? It, Samson is like the Old Testament Hulk. All right? He gets cranky and then he does dumb stuff when he's cranky. That's kind of how it works. Um, he leaves his wife at his own wedding and she ends up getting married to the best man, right? There's some kind of riddle that goes on. The, uh, the, he, he, he loved telling riddles and the Philistines put pressure on his, his wife over the, how long they're getting married, over the week or whatever it was that they were getting married to get this, the answer to the riddle. This is, I've got to read you this. This has got nothing to do with anything that I'm saying, but I think this is one of the funniest passages in scripture, all right? So he's put this uh, riddle out, um, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? This is what's happening in his marriage week or whatever. I'm not sure exactly what's going on, but in the process of him getting married, this this is the riddle he puts out. The Philistines put the pressure on his wife. Listen to this. This is Judges 14. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey, what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, listen to this. I think this is hilarious. Women will probably be offended, but... If you had not ploughed with my heifer, you would have not found out my riddle. <laughs> I just... Gentlemen, don't ever say that to your wife, all right? And call her a heifer. 
And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who were told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Now, the interesting thing is that Samson comes back to get her as his wife, and they're going, it's too late, champ. She's with the best man. Um, He gets cranky, he sets foxes alight. Uh, the tales of them, and they run through the, the fields, burning things up. Um, he visited prostitutes, all right? This guy is a bit of a zero a lot of the time, all right? So just a bit of a tip, when you're teaching your kids, you go, you want to be like Samson, you just need to clarify exactly what you mean, okay? Because if your kid ends up at a brothel somewhere, that's probably not what you had in mind. Uh, all right, the next one, Jephthah. Jephthah is an interesting character, Jephthah is the son of a prostitute. Now, just think about that for a minute. The son of a prostitute. He beat the Ammonites, but he actually made this vow that the first thing that walked out of his house, if God gave him the victory of the Ammonites, he said the first thing that walked out of his house, he would sacrifice to the Lord. Now, you know what walked out first? His daughter. And you know what? He went through with it. He actually, he gave, I think he gave his daughter a couple of months up in the hills to mourn her virginity. That's kind of what the Bible says. And then he actually sacrificed her to God. Now, God didn't ask him to do that. That's a really dumb. I mean, if you look up the actual heading for that section in, in your Bible, say something like Jephthah's rash vow. All right, the next one. Here we go. David. Okay. If you think committing adultery, getting the wife drunk because you've just made her pregnant and you've got to somehow cover it up um, and then organise to get the husband killed in battle to kind of cover this, all this sort of stuff up. If, if you think that's hero, heroic <laughs> character, you, you, we need to talk. Uh, then you've got all these issues in uh, David's family. You've got his son uh, Amnon rapes his sister Um, David doesn't really do anything about it in his own family. It ends up with Absalom going and killing Amnon because there's this fracturous kind of thing going on. Are you kind of getting the idea here? That really fascinating thing is there's lots of history going on for each one of these characters, but the writer of Hebrews doesn't mention any of them. Now, is he drunk? I don't know. Is Is he drinking? He's not. There's a very clear and specific purpose that he's wanting to bring out. There's one exception. He doesn't tell the backstory or the negative side to anyone in this list except who? It's the one I skipped. Which one did I skip? Rahab the who? Imagine if that was you. So she's being known for all of history now as the lady who's a prostitute. The really, really interesting thing about Rahab, the prostitute, if you actually look at the name, remember I said the the meaning to the name Sarah was princess? You know the meaning for Rahab? Insolence and pride. Now often, in the Old Testament, in prophetical books and in the Psalms, Egypt as a nation is called Rahab. So you've got this long list of heroes of the faith and the guy doesn't mention anything negative about any of them and right in the middle of it you've got Rahab the prostitute. Pride, insolence, prostitute. What the heck is going on in there? 
And then you've got this statement right at the end of uh, Hebrews 11, which I've got down the bottom right-hand corner on the screen there, of whom the world was not worthy. So let me put it in a sentence. Rahab the prostitute of whom the world was not worthy. You get the point? Now let me read you the section of Joshua 2. So here's the story. The Israelites are coming for the second time round. They've sent some spies into Canaan um, and they've sent spies into Jericho and they get to Rahab's place or close to Rahab's place and she hid them. All right? Here's what it says in Joshua 2 verse 8. If you want to grab it, you can grab it and have a look at it. Joshua 2 verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before, before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you uh, devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now the interesting thing about this statement, I'm going to read a little bit more in a sec. Israel's only had two battles. So did they have vast arrays of uh, camels, horses, chariots, um, war machines that they can knock walls down? They don't, all right? They're probably a pretty ragtag, they're a big group of people, but they're probably a really ragtag group of people. Jericho's a big city, it's got big walls, they should have nothing to fear. But the interesting thing is Rahab's saying, we have a lot to fear because God's with you. Now then, she says, please swear to me by the Lord that as I've dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Now let me read the uh, scripture in the middle one more time. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So here you've got pride, insolence, Rahab, turns in the meaning of her name. She's not a Jew. She's not an Israelite. She's a prostitute. And in the, out, out of nowhere, she ends up becoming this person of faith and she gets included in Hebrews 11. And there's no one else in the whole of Hebrews 11 where it talks about the bad things that happened in their past except for Rahab. That ought to be some amazing comfort for you because you're not an Israelite probably, by birth, by bloodline. You're not an Israelite. You see, even total zeros can get faith right. True? Even total zeros can get faith right. And this is, I mean, I'm I'm not preaching on shame, right? But with the whole shame thing, like if you just think, I'm a total zero. Okay, here's Rahab the prostitute, complete zero. She gets it right, she makes it in the Hall of Fame. If you can be a prostitute in a Canaanite city that's about to get whacked by God's people and make it in the Hall of Fame by taking refuge and putting your active trust in God, that's good news for us. Amen? 
It doesn't matter what. I mean, it doesn't matter today whether you're uh, someone who's followed Jesus for 20 years or you're not following him yet. It doesn't matter. You can make it in the faith kind of hall of fame. All you've got to do to make it in is put your active trust and take refuge in God. That's what it is. Zeros can make it. Of whom the world is not worthy includes everyone who is of faith who places their trust in Jesus. That includes you. When you do that, as you follow Jesus and you put your faith and your trust in him, that phrase becomes true of you. The world, the whole world, I mean, think about it. Hebrews 11 is saying, you could give the whole world for Rahab the prostitute and it wouldn't be enough. That's what he's saying. That's amazing. That is how valuable active trust and faith in God is. The whole world, like this dude who's stuck in North, uh, North Korean prison right now. The world, the whole world is not worthy of that man. True? If that's what he's doing, if he's saying, God, I'm putting my active trust in you and people in North Korea are not finding out about you and they need to find out about you, otherwise they're going to go to hell. He's putting active trust in God and the world is not worthy of, of him and his faith. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. You don't have to come from good stock. You just have to take refuge in God. I want to read you this uh, quote uh, out of a commentator that I, uh, that I was looking at this week. He says this, Notice in Hebrews 11 that sometimes God works miracles of rescue through suffering and sometimes he gives the faith to endure misery and death. The common denominator in the faith that escapes and the faith that endures is that in both God is treasured above liberty and life. Listen to this. The one who escapes death says Jesus is better than what I gain. The one who escapes a North Korean prison camp, which is all of us, need to say Jesus is better than what I gain by not being in a North Korean prison camp. Amen? The one who dies says... Jesus is better than what I lose. That is the essence of faith. Jesus trusted and valued above all. That's point one. When heroes are zeros. Point two. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, you need to have zero encumbrances. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. An encumbrance, according to the dictionary, is an impediment or a burden. An example the dictionary gives is a horse uh, that raises its hind legs as if to rid itself of an an encumbrance, something that's trapping them. And I want to just tell you a little bit about ancient athletes. We just had the Winter Olympics. You probably know about ancient athletes and the uh, origin of the, the Olympic Games. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a bit of an intro with uh, a, a section of scripture from 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. One of the key ideas for athletes that would compete in the Games is the Greek word for, uh, that we get agony and agonise from. 
that's the idea of training that needs to go on for a, an athlete to compete in the Greek Olympics. They would train for about 10 months. Um, there, would, there would even be, there's even some uh, historical suggestion that athletes who didn't train well, who were, who were slack and flabby and just lazy, they'd get whipped, all right? And they'd actually kind of get whipped into training. Um, and the really interesting thing about it is uh, at one point in time, the winners of a race at an Olympic Games, the ancient winners, you know what they'd get? Celery. A stick of celery. Historically, there was a whole period of time that what they would get would be a stick of celery. I'd probably waving into a, a few sticks maybe, waving into a wreath. It's just, it's like $2. All right? Now, there's some other suggestion that there's some financial in, uh, incentives and all that sort of stuff. But the glory on the day, stick of celery. And you can, so you can see why Paul's saying, we don't race for something that dies. You know, you imagine if it's a stick of celery, Paul's saying, we don't race for something that's going to be no good for salad in three days. All right? We race for something that will never fade away, that will never, ever perish. And the Bible continually calls people and Christians not to be, sl- not to be flabby, not to be overweight, not to be half-hearted. So let me ask you that question at this point in time. How lean are you? Because I think the author of Hebrews wants you to know that you need to be lean to make it. I don't think he wants you to know that if you are lean, you make it more effectively. I think he wants you to know you need to be lean because... What's the word he actually uses up here in Hebrews 12? Endurance. Being lean is about endurance. Now, there's two things he says you need to do. One of them is you need to lay off weights. Now, I've been thinking about this. I was thinking of calling this section here, Get Naked. (laughs) All right? You know why? Because the ancient runners often would run naked. Now, they obviously, they, they believe the body was beautiful, and some of you may believe that about your particular body. Some of you may not, all right? But do you get the idea? The idea of laying off a weight, are clothes actually bad? And you'd say, no, they're actually a real blessing for a lot of people, <laughs> all right? Are clothes bad? No, they're not, right? But here's the thing. You're going to run a race. What do you want to do? Well, you want to be as lean and as unencumbered, not uninhibited, but unencumbered as possible, true? So you can see they're getting their gear off. And they're going to race with no extra weight. And you know what I reckon? I, this is, I didn't find this in any commentary, right? So don't, maybe don't take this to the bank because it's above my pay grade. I think this is what the writer of Hebrews is doing in chapter 11. Is he's actually stripping off the encumbrances of each one of those heroes and showing what faith needs to be like. Does that make sense? I think that's what he's doing. Now, no one says that. That's just a Sondergeldism. All right? But I think that's what he's doing. He's actually doing what he's saying in uh, Hebrews 12 verse 1. He's, he's actually just done it for a whole chapter. Now, encumbrances. Think about this for a minute. Encumbrances have to do with what your goal is. True? Encumbrances change. Things that limit and hinder depend upon what your goal is. Let me give you some examples. Down at Wet and Wild... There's a, there's a ride called the Aqua Race. Has anyone here been on that? Yeah, cool. I, I'd like win it all the time. Do you know why? 
apart from the fact I'm very good at it. <laughs> of course, I mean, you'd say that anyway. But Do you know why I win it? Because most of the time I'm the heaviest guy on the ride. Right? And on that race, weight is not an encumbrance. Weight is a help. Do you see that? So if the goal is to win that race, weight is a help. Now, one of my sons the other day was taking his shoes off. And he couldn't get his shoe off, right? I'm not going to say who this was, but he couldn't get his shoe off, okay? Because his goal was to get his shoe off, his shoe staying on and not getting it off became an encumbrance to him. And he put a hole in my wall. (laughs) All right? (laughs) If you're a sumo wrestler, weight is not an encumbrance, right? Because you have a different goal, you have a different objective. And here's the thing. What we've got to work out here is what are the encumbrances that are actually going to stop someone getting to the objective that God wants you to get to? Because your neighbours that don't follow Jesus, and if any of you here don't love Jesus, your encumbrances are just going to be different to someone who follows Jesus. And Christians probably will make different decisions that look a little bit weird because they need to train differently because they're in a different race. And the truth here is, folks, if you're at lethargic, you might not make it. The interesting thing about the race of faith is a race of faith is not a sprint. Now, Hebrews is clear about that, right? Because it's about endurance. Okay? It's about endurance. It's mostly a marathon. But listen, I want to add, it's like the Ethiopians running a marathon. I remember uh, thinking about the, you know, you watch the Ethiopians doing a distance race in the Olympics or something, and you just go, they're not actually running that fast. They're running about as fast almost as I can sprint. Right? Good luck. Yeah, so look at him, he can't run. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? The, the, the life of faith, is, it's an endurance race, but it's an Ethiopian endurance race. It's still quick. We're, what God's calling on is quick, it's intense. But here's the thing, it's long, it's hard, it's tiring, and the sprint's not going to get it done. One of the things, uh, my three oldest boys went in the cross country at the school here last year. And uh, the really interesting thing about how they went in the cross country is my youngest guy... It was one of those guys, he was winning it for the first half, all right? He just went out so hard. And that one of the things I was telling my, my two older boys, I said, you need to go fast, but you need to just pace yourself, all right? Don't go flat out at the start. You need to come home strong. And one of my boys in particular, I couldn't believe how strong he was looking at the finish line. And I'd, I thought he'd probably get second or third. He ended up taking out first, all right? There's only probably 15 other kids he's running against, but I thought it was pretty good, all right? He really paced himself. He timed himself. There's been a few times I've run the cross country at the school here. There was two times that in particular that I noticed the, the difference. One time the school actually went out to Highfields and they ran around the streets at Highfields. I loved it, all right? I don't know whether you noticed around here, but the hills are so steep and sharp and infrequent. It's really difficult at the school here to get into a stride. You guys know what I'm talking about? You just can't get into a stride. Like, it's okay to go up hills and everything, but when it's, it's so... Um, variable, it makes it really difficult to get into a stride. And one of the things I say to my boys is I say, no one runs up hills. Pretty much no one. 
run up the hills and you'll pass all the people going up the hills and on the other side you'll catch a breath. And that probably would be something that Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews would say, hit the hills and run hard up the hills. Run hard up the hills. Don't give in, all right? The difference between a good runner and a great runner is how they go on the hills, right? Anyone can run down a hill. That's easy. It's running up the hills. That's the challenge. And the writer of Hebrews would say, get in your stride. Extra weight is going to be a problem for you, so you need to get rid of it, all right? He would say this. If he was here today, he'd say, just get stuff off. Just find out what the weights are that slow you down and get it off because it's actually not ultimately about speed. It's about endurance. And you're not going to get there if you've got stuff on you that keeps weighing you down. Get in your stride. Some of you here have got good rhythm. You're in your stride. But some of you are probably overweight, flabby, and thinking you can carry a bunch of sin with you and a bunch of weight with you that's going to slow you down. And you're not going to make it. That's the warning from Hebrews. Hebrews, you're not going to make it. If you don't cast off the weight, you're not going to make it. Now, the interesting thing from the writer here is he's making a distinction between things that entangle you, disobedience to God and sinful things, and things that just slow you down, that aren't actually sinful. There's a lot of things that slow people down that aren't actually sinful. There's a lot of things that limit someone's endurance that aren't actually sinful. Let me give you a couple. Busyness. Busyness. You can be so busy and so frantic doing stuff that you just get slowed down. You walk with God, your walk of faith slows down. You start running out of puff. People need help around you. You don't have the time for them because you're just too busy. And the problem a lot of the time is people in the church are not going to be busy with stuff that's evil. It's all going to be good stuff. But this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Be careful because you're going to get weights on you that are going to slow you down, that are going to limit your endurance, and perhaps they're going to mean that you don't actually make it. Let me give you another one. And this is classic. This is kind of my place I come from. You better believe every single person I work with that needs help, that needs pastoral care, that needs counselling, they've got dysfunctions and they've got ways of handling things in their life that are a weight to them, that slow them down. And man, you just see it all the time. People get to the point where they just go, I can't handle this weight anymore. Now, it's not necessarily a specific sin, but there is a mechanism going on that just really works you over. And we looked at this a little bit last year uh, in the anxiety series. Anxiety is one of those things. Like if I was to ask you, is it a sin to be afraid of something? Probably not. I'm not going to say no categorically because I think sometimes it is, right? But probably not. It's not a sin to be afraid. But you know what? If you don't handle the fear and the anxiety well, that's going to become a weight on you and it's going to limit your endurance, it's going to limit your capacity and you're going to struggle to make it. Jesus talks often about weights that stop people from making it. You can look at the parable of the sower where he says the seed that fell amongst the thorns and the thistles grew up and it got choked out by the cares and the worries of this life. Are there cares and worries of the life? Absolutely there is. That can be a weight that weighs someone down. 
There's other stories that Jesus tells about wedding banquets that uh, a guy threw and people just couldn't come. One of them had to go and check out his um, cow. Uh, One of them just bought a block of land. One of them just got married. And somehow all of those good things, none of those are bad. If you want to buy a cow, you buy a cow, all right? You can send me a message and let me know I bought a cow. I just felt like God called me to do that. I had a Sunday sermon, bought a potty calf, and I don't even have a backyard. But anyway, they're not bad things, right? But it's even, and I don't have time today, but I was even thinking yesterday, I wonder how much of a weight husbands and wives can be to each other. You know, how much, let me ask you as a husband or a wife, if if you're married, how much do you work to be someone who releases your spouse to follow God to the fullest or, or how much are you an actual weight upon them? Are, are you like some kind of weight belt on them, you know, and it just makes their job harder and they just get more tired and they have moments where they're giving up or are you someone who actually brings release to your husband or your wife to follow God fully, full throttle? It's an interesting question and I'm not saying it because you're not doing that because probably, I, I, I suspect probably most of you are but I would encourage you to do it more. Do it more. Don't just deal with the insecurity about what that means about you that your husband or your wife is, you know, maybe they're further along than you in, in spiritual things. Just deal with that, alright? Be in it for their best interest and don't be a weight upon them. Susanna Wesley made this really insightful comment about sin and how you can tell whether something's sin. But I think it's particularly useful here uh, for us to have a good bearing on knowing what, knowing when we're being entangled by sin. Here's what Susanna Wesley said. How would you judge the lawfulness or unlawfulness of pleasure? Use this rule. If you use this standard, you do pretty well. Whatever weakens your reason impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sight of God, takes from you your thirst for spiritual things or increases the authority of your body over your mind. That's a huge one, right? Our whole culture works to increase people's response of their body over their mind. Then that thing to you is evil. By this test you may detect evil no matter how subtly or how plausibly temptation may be presented to you. I think it's, I mean, if you printed that out, it'll be on uh, our website, but if you printed that out and you put it in your wallet and you get a temptation, you just go, okay, are any of these happening? I'm not doing it. I think that's really, really helpful. And here's where I want to finish today. The writer of Hebrews would want us to look through the zeros to the hero. I, I, I suspect probably... Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 probably needs to stay in the back end of Hebrews 11. Because it's like, here's all these heroes of the faith. And then he finishes and he goes, listen, this is the guy they were looking to. And this is the guy that you need to look to. This is like, you know, in, when, when people are, are training and they're, uh, and they're racing and they're wanting to be a really, really good athlete, what do they do? Well, they look at videos of gifted athletes and they study them, don't they? I mean, every time that you... Uh, 
My boys love rugby, I love rugby. Every time a team plays another rugby team, the Australian team, you better believe that the Australian team has sat and watched a whole bunch of videos about the other team and the way that they actually play the game and where their skill is. Now, when someone's particularly skillful, you want to watch them and you want to work out what is it about them that I can, I can copy, I can imitate. And this is the kind of thing that you get with Jesus here in Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2, is the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen... You can look at all these guys and I'm encouraging you to do that because they've got a whole bunch of things right. But the guy that you really want to look at is Jesus, all right? He runs the race and he ran the race really, really well. Here's verse 2 of Hebrews 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, if someone scorns something, Normally it means they have nothing to do with it. This uh, commentator, I've got to read you this quote. It's uh, from a guy called Morris. He says this, he says, uh, scorning at shame, which is uh, used to describe how Jesus dealt with shame, means rather that Jesus thought so little of the pain and shame involved that he did not bother to avoid it. (laughs) That's what they're saying this actually means. The shame and the pain of going to the cross and dying for everyone he didn't bother to avoid it because he thought so little of it. It was like there was this active trust of him in his father. And it was so incredibly strong. He looked to the reward. He looked to the objective. And the writer of Hebrews would say, be like him. Be like Jesus. Look to the reward and look to the objective. Now, what a finish here today. Do you think God likes you? Now, if I asked you, do you think God loves you? You would say, I know that he loves me because the Bible says he loves me. But what's actually happened, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is we've kind of turned love into a choice kind of thing and we just think that God grits his teeth and he chooses to love us. And uh, one thing I noticed when my wife and I uh, were courting is when you actually say to someone, I love you, it actually means something different to when you say to them that I like you. A lot of the time someone will say, I love you, and yet, well, you kind of have to. <laughs> True? But if you say, I like you, it says that you actually like them. Because we've got this idea going around, you, like... You don't have to like people that you love. Well, I know what people are trying to say, right? But good luck with that. That's really, that's really hard to do. So I want to ask you today, do you think that God likes you? Because I think you are part of what Hebrews 12 verse 2 says. You are part of the joy that was before him. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He actually likes you. And this is sometimes where, uh, and if you don't even know what I'm talking about, that's fine. I'm not going to spend long in it. But this is where Reformed theology trips us up, I reckon. You know, you can get a really solid, and hopefully at the project you can see that we've got a really solid doctrine of, of sin and disobedience from God and the need for salvation and we, hopefully we've got a pretty 
we're getting close to God's, the biblical understanding of what sin is. I mean, it's, I don't think we ever fully understand how messy it is, but uh, we're in that direction. But do you think he actually likes you? You know, you see stuff here and you just go, I'm pretty sure we're like the BB prize, you know, like we're the wooden spoon prize. <laughs> but see, the thing is, he doesn't see it like that. Let me give you a couple other scriptures and then I'm going to finish. Jude, verse 24 and 25, says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. What's the next three words? As some of you traffic in this kind of thinking already, and you, this, is, this is old news for you, some of you need to traffic more in it. Honestly, because probably some of us in this room, you just think, seriously, God's going to present us to his father and he's kind of be, he'll be looking sideways he'll be thinking where's the best man alright like Samson he'll just be going you know be gritting his teeth and you'll be looking at his face and you'll be going he's just doing this because he has to because his father made him do it and that, that idea is just absolutely not in God's categories at all because the category in God's mind the category in Jesus' mind is that it's going to be fun for him to present you to the father he likes you now listen is it true that he makes you more likable absolutely all right that's the plan all right are there things about you that aren't that nice are there of course there are right that's the case for all of us but does he fundamentally like you yes he does yes he does for the joy sorry i'll I'll keep reading here for the joy set before him present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our saviour through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty dominion and authority before all time now and forever amen last scripture then I'm praying psalm 18 this is a section out of a psalm that people with a really solid theology or doctrine of sin they just tend to kind of skip over this stuff a little bit all right because they don't know where to put it and to be honest I've done that a fair bit. You just kind of skip over it. You go, well, I don't really know where to put it, right? And then you probably go on to the next few verses and David kind of tells you why God delights in him and then you kind of try and work out some theology there. But let me read it. He sent from on high, this is Psalm 18, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity but the Lord was my support. Listen to this. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me. Why? Because he delights in you. Now listen, you might go on and read the context and you should do that. And David says he delighted in me because I obeyed him. But you know what? He never obeyed God properly. He never obeyed God completely. And he stuffed a whole bunch of things up. And some of you this morning just need to hear that God delights in you. That he actually likes you. And he likes you when you're feeling foul and when you're feeling great. He likes you. Could it be a vending machine? Let that one hit the bottom. Why don't you stand with me? I'm going to pray. We'll finish.
God, we just start, we just pray for uh, John Short, who's in that prison in North Korea. Hey, God, we pray that you'd uh, strengthen his faith. He's under pressure. And uh, who knows how long the pressure will last for? Who knows what's going to happen? He's gone there to serve you in faith, it appears. And uh, so we just ask God that you build his faith and that you'd meet him there and that you would do everything that needs to be done to meet all of his needs, God, and that you'd help him to actively trust you in this moment. And God, I just thank you that you like us. Jesus, at your death on the cross for us, puts your Father totally at liberty to like us and to love us. There's nothing that gets in the way. And God, I pray that uh, you'd help us to live in that. Help us to throw off the encumbrances, throw off the weights, to untangle the sin. And just live in the freedom of your delight in us and what you want to do in our lives. And God, that you just help us to run this endurance race well. Amen.